better than that. Is anybody excited that Jesus is who he says he is? Come on. Are you glad to be in church today? I know I am. If you have a Bible, you can meet me in John chapter 20. We'll be looking at John chapter 20. I've been thinking a lot this week about the last couple weeks as we've been looking at John 19 and then the beginning of John 20, where we're talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think oftentimes we get it, but we don't always have it, if that makes sense. I was thinking about this quote that I read one time uh, that Anne Lamott wrote. It'll be on the screen for you. And she wrote this. She said, my coming to faith did not start with a leap, but rather a series of staggers from what seemed like one safe place to another. Like lily pads, round and green, these places summoned and then held me up while I grew. Each prepared me for the next leaf on which I would land. And in this way, I love this line, I moved across the swamp of doubt and fear. I don't know about you, but when I sing songs like the resurrected king has resurrected me, I believe that from my head to my toes, from my insides to my outsides. Come on, does anybody else believe that as well? We believe that, but you know, a lot of times Tuesday happens. You know, you know, Monday, we can, we can borrow Sunday's faith for Monday a lot, right? But by the time you get to Tuesday, how many of you know your kids? They steal it. <laughs> I shouldn't blame that on my kids, should I? That's on me. I probably steal theirs, right? Because I'm, yeah, you get it. My point is just simply that we sing those songs and they're glorious, but the question I want to wrestle with you today, and I want to look at the aftermath of the resurrection, because those things are mountaintop things, mountaintop truths, and they inform everything about our faith. But in reality, a lot of times our life looks a lot like that swamp of doubt and fear, and I'm looking for lily pads to land on, right? Even the scripture is so honest to say that God's word is a light to my feet and a feet and a lamp to my path, right? We're not given the whole picture. <laughs> so the question I want to wrestle with today, and I want to just look at it honestly from the scriptures, and it'll be on the screen. I want you to write this down if you've got something, is what do I do with my doubt? What do I do with my doubt? I love the honesty of the resurrection story. I love the honesty that St. John, one of those first apostles, close to Jesus, he was the guy Jesus chose to rest his head on. That guy, I think, just knew that for the rest of the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, we would need some hope immediately upon the resurrection. 
to just be reminded that though the resurrected king is going to resurrect you, right? Like I think about baptism. I think about the scriptures in Romans that say we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And we just declare that and we have celebrated that over the last few weeks. But there is this tinge in me. And I think if you were honest, there's this tinge in you that says my life is just not always catching that traction that I wish that it was when it comes to my faith. There is a lot of writing on this. One of my favorites, Andrew Root, calls it this imminent frame where it's just that this world that I live in, this secular moment that I find myself in, it's nearly impossible to not get caught up in it in some way, shape, or form. What do you do with your doubt? There is a temptation to feel like you are missing something after walking through, studying, thinking through, jumping from those mountaintops of the death and resurrection, the doctrines of those with Jesus, and the literal life-altering implications, and we believe they are. And yet, often life looks and feels a lot like the art of hopping from one safe place to another. And a little less, if I'm honest, of the ideal picture of Christian faith that it lives in my head. That's why I love scriptures like 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, where it says, God chooses to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I need that. That's the lily pad I'm looking for. But it is still a fair question. What do I do with my doubt? Because those other scriptures are in there, right? We have studied them all through the Gospel of John where where John would tell us and record for us the words of Jesus that says, if you will follow me, you will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. I want some of that. So it is a fair question because believing in Jesus does have great implications. But I do want to just point out today that the scriptures are not idealistic either. They are very honest. John was very honest in his recording of what happened immediately after Jesus was resurrected. And I love it because the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus was not immediate utopia and world peace. (laughs) It wasn't. Wasn't that at all? The elements of human life still remained, albeit with this new spirituality, which was the Holy Spirit come to the life of believers, which we'll see here in a second, and would eventually, as the church was born in Acts, indwell all believers for all of time. You and I benefiting from being sealed with the Holy Spirit even now. So in that context, with that backdrop, with thinking about that in mind, I want to look at John chapter 20, verse 19 to 31. And I want you to just follow along. It'll be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, it's always better to hold it in your hands and look at it in that way. But why don't you stand with me and we'll just honor the reading of God's Word. It's really fun to think that for more than a hundred years in this very room, people have been standing to honor the reading of God's word. Uh, We're just jumping in that long line of faithfulness. Here's what the Bible says on the evening of that day. So we're 
still on that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for what? Fear. The immediate aftermath of the resurrected Jesus appearing to his disciples was fear. (laughs) What? That you mean they never sang the song, the resurrected king is resurrecting me? What's wrong with these guys? Yeah, the human element. But check this out. Where they were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see that in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, how many of you know God's timing is always better than ours? I would have liked Jesus to just, bam! But he didn't. He made Thomas wait eight days. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked. That'll preach. <laughs> Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, for the third time, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. You can have a seat as a direct result of the resurrection of Jesus, I want to look at these three propositions of peace here in the text that Jesus offered to his disciples. The aftermath of the resurrection was not an ideal picture of what the kingdom of God coming on earth would look like, but in fact, it met the disciples where they were at. And it shouldn't get lost on us that the first three things that Jesus says to his disciples is peace be with you. Our Lord himself declares peace to his disciples in three different ways here. And I want to look at them. Number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus speaks peace 
to the disciples' fear. The very first detail we're given is that they are hiding in fear from their fellow Jews. Ten of the eleven closest disciples, Thomas is not present for whatever reason, and Judas has obviously no longer a part of the picture, are huddled in a room, hiding in fear, and Jesus comes into their midst in miraculous fashion to speak to their fear these words, peace be with you. Isn't it interesting that he didn't come apparently with a word of courage, with a word of strength, He didn't come in with a rally cry for war. He didn't come with any of that. He came to his disciples in their fear, miraculously standing in their presence and said, peace be with you. And I find that really telling of the human spirit, of the human condition. That in that moment, after seeing the resurrected Jesus, he had died, he was Buried for three days, and then he was alive, and they have seen him, and they are hiding in fear. I love what Alexander McLaren many years ago said so well. Let's be on the screen for you. He said, True faith, by a mighty effort of the will, fixes its gaze on the divine helper. And there, right, with your eyes fixed on Jesus, right? We say all the time, the vision is Jesus, right? That we love God because He first loved us. That the vision is Jesus. (laughs) He finds it fixed on the divine helper and there finds it possible, not only possible, possible and wise to lose its fears. It is madness to say, I will not be afraid. But it is wisdom and peace to say, I will trust And not be afraid. You see the difference? Not until the disciples in this moment would fix their eyes on Jesus. Would the madness of the fear be able to be set aside. And I just wonder as you walk in here. What is it that causes you fear? This is so telling to me of the human spirit. It's so telling to me of my own self. Of what are the things that come into my heart and into my mind and into my spirit and into my soul that cause me fear? I think this might be one of the reasons why Jesus tells us to have faith like a child. Because what does a child do when they're afraid? They do what? They run to who? Hopefully they have a good dad, right? That they would run to their father or run to their mother and be calmed, be given peace in a safe place. It's telling to me that this is the place that the disciples are and I am reminded by the words here that it is in fixing our eyes on Jesus in that fear that it becomes both possible and then wise to leave our fears behind. Because listen, if we put ourselves where the disciples are, think about the mission in front of them. Think about the mission in front of them and the words that Jesus is saying to them. 
The mission in front of them is huge. Probably they couldn't even wrap their minds around what it would be. The fact that we're sitting here right now because they were faithful to the call that God put on their life. That as the Holy Spirit filled them with power that they went out and the gospel has literally gone around the world. The kingdom of God breaking in literally around the world. If we put ourselves in their shoes, what was in front of them was really big. It was probably really scary. It was exhilarating. It was life-changing. If it was true, they are still obviously wrestling with fear and doubt. If it's true, life-changing. And it obviously, we've read the book of Acts. We know that much happens. But in that moment, they were gripped with fear. Because in their mind, if they walked out of that room, it could all end like that. And that was probably true. And if it's not true, and here they are hiding in fear, and they're about to die, (laughs) they've wasted their lives following Jesus those last three years. And now to make matters worse, they're hiding And it's the presence of Jesus in that moment that comes into them and stands before them and speaks a word of peace. That's powerful. And that word of peace, I love the language that Alexander McLaren gave us, right? It enables the disciples to find their mission both possible and wise. They were humans. They were I mean, Jesus even said in his ministry, count the cost, right? (laughs) A builder doesn't build a house without counting the cost, right? Jesus has already said those words. And I can just imagine the stuff running through their mind as they're looking ahead and counting the cost of what this would look like and what it would be like. And Jesus' word of peace, literally the text says, makes them glad makes them glad. It enables them to find this mission both possible and wise. It enables them to trust and maybe still be a little afraid, (laughs) but they're going to be willing to follow it, which leads us to the proposition number two there. Number two, Jesus speaks peace to the disciples' vocation. This is what we talked about in the past couple weeks. And so I won't go into this at length, but it's still here because he speaks peace to their fear because he's calling them to something. Remember, we said last week that we weren't just saved from something. We are saved to something. The kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven from the very beginning of creation is what we were put here for. To be God's image bearers on the earth and to subdue the earth and see that it would flourish. And that has not changed. Sin has tainted that, but that mission hasn't changed. That purpose in the world hasn't changed. It is the unique selling point, the unique factor in the mission of God as compared to others that he brings dead things to life and then they flourish. I love that. Jesus speaks peace to that calling, to that vocation, to that purpose in the world. So make no mistake though, the disciples and us as the church were then and now called into a vocation. I want to say that, that we are called to a kingdom purpose in the world. That there is value in you showing up tomorrow at a doctor's office and doing data entry. (laughs) There is value in you going to middle school tomorrow 
and being salt and light in your school. That there is value in you getting up tomorrow and going at it one more time with your spouse to see that flourishing happens in the earth. That you go to, and you fill in the blank, right? That wherever God has placed you, it is valuable and has purpose because Jesus meets you there and you are his representative on the earth. His image bearer to other image bearers who do not yet know that they are image bearers. As Tony Evans says, the father sent the son and now the son is sending the disciples and now we are being sent on a kingdom mission. Look again at verse 21. It says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I think we often think just of Matthew's gospel account when it comes to the Great Commission, right? That fancy way of saying that we're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, right? The Great Commission. But right here we have it too. We have John's account of that Great Commission. It's known as the Johannine Great Commission that the sent one is becoming the sender. There's a shift in purpose here. And for this highest of purposes in the world, the disciples are given in this moment the Holy Spirit. That they would go and the church would be born and then those tongues of fire that we see in Acts chapter 2 had to be incredible. That these disciples were given the Spirit of God, right? right? So, when, so when Jesus speaks peace to that calling, peace to that vocation, he doesn't just speak peace and say, good luck, Right? Matthew says it this way, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. John's reminding them in his own language here the same thing. Jesus is saying, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And as you go, receive the Holy Spirit. For this highest of purposes. And then you get verse 23, which is super weird. (laughs) It's like, if you go and forgive people, they'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they won't be forgiven. What do we do with that? (laughs) I don't think that what's happening here is they're being given the role of God in people's life. I think what is being said here is Jesus has come. He has died for the sins of all people. And then he rose again to bring life to all people. And so as Paul says in Romans, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. But that news, Jesus said, is both inclusive and exclusive, is it not? There is only one way to have life, and it is through Jesus. And so in even declaring the gospel, we're offering to people that there are only two options essentially in finding the life that you were made for. To do it on your own or to do it with Jesus. And there are some aspects of that that just frankly, I don't understand all that's happening in that spot. But what I do know is they were sent and Jesus chose the word gospel. He chose the word euangelion, which means good news. And I think he's big enough to handle the parts that we don't get. (laughs) Maybe I'll understand it in five years and we'll discover that together. 
But what is important here that in their fear of going and doing what he has called them to do, he's given them the Holy Spirit and he's commissioned them to go and preach good news. Super important. Perhaps that's what Paul is referring to when he says the preaching of the cross is folly to the perishing, but the power of God to those who are being saved. And again, I've talked at length about the vocation, so I'll leave that there. But perhaps the most important aspect of this comes in the third proposition of peace here. See, because to this point, Jesus is talking to the collective disciples. And when we come to church and we hear sermons and we go to city group and we talk and pray and it's always in that group context and then we go home and I don't know about you, but sometimes I sit by myself and I get in my thoughts and I get in my head and there come the fears, there come the doubts, there come all the things. And I just want to point out to you that the third proposition of peace here is that Jesus comes on a separate occasion eight days later to speak directly peace to Thomas's doubt. Not collective. He takes the time to come to one guy, look him in the eye, touch him physically, and speak peace to Thomas's doubt. He gets personal. He cares about one story, one life, one man's fears and doubts. See, I think a lot of us, we can, we can come here and we can, we can see the mission for God's people. We can see the vocation. That light bulb can come on. That kingdom coming on earth can come on. We can see it. We can see the call in Scripture. It's, it's clearly there. I get it. I'm supposed to be about these things. You know, Paul goes on later in Corinthians to tell us that we're God's ambassadors. I mean, I love that verse. God making his appeal to the earth through us. That's electric and terrifying. (laughs) I'm your rep? That's a bad day. Nine out of ten times. (laughs) I find one once in a while. But man, like I I think we can see that. But if we get real for a moment, we come full circle to where we started today. So often I find myself, and maybe I won't tell anybody, Maybe you won't tell anybody, but I find myself in that swamp of doubt and fear. Looking for lily pads. I know this is true. I need to find one to stand on because my reality is not matching what I believe in my head and my heart. I'm looking for that lily pad. What do I do with my own doubts and fears? And listen, I think there's a danger here in this text because we over the years have given Thomas this cute nickname. Oh, it's Doubting Thomas. And we've put him on flannel boards and we've stripped him of his humanity and like what was really happening there. I don't think Thomas was just like, oh, shucks, Thomas. (laughs) You just had a little doubt, Doubting Thomas. No, no, no. Thomas had been through some stuff. Thomas had just watched his Lord be crucified with nails through his flesh. And now he's being told that Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, even if I told you I was going to rise from the dead, and then I did and you saw me, you'd be like, I must have lost my mind. (laughs) Like, think about the humanity of what just happened. He's like, if I don't, 
not only if I don't see him, if I don't stick my finger in the hole. I mean, that's kind of weird, Tom. If I don't place my hand in his side, what's he say? I will never believe. This is, it's not just, oh, it's doubting Thomas. No, no, no. Thomas at this point has become a skeptic. It's not just little old doubting Thomas for Sunday school. I think Thomas has become a skeptic here and he's saying, unless I can touch it, I will never believe. And what does Jesus do? Eight days later, he steps into the room with Thomas and he says, Thomas, come here. I want you to touch my, I want you to touch my nail scarred hands. Thomas, put your, put your hand in here. And listen, I think Jesus would invite you to step right up into your doubt and fear and say, Jesus, I need to taste and see that you're good. I need you. You've heard me say before, and I stand by it, that God's office is at the end of your rope. I don't think you need more answers. That's good, and we're going to keep doing that, right? That's part of the call of the church is to disciple each other. And help each other grow. But listen, I think for some of you today, you walked in here and you're, you're, not, you're not at that point. <laughs> like, what do I do with my doubt? Like, I'm looking around at all the stuff going on in the world. I'm looking at all the things like, where's God? I think you can step right into that moment just as Thomas did. You see, shalom, peace, is not just about the ending of violent actions. Shalom is about human flourishing. And the vision for human flourishing will take eternal life. <laughs> I love that scripture that says, a day is but a thousand and a thousand but a day in God's economy. I'm paraphrasing, of course. He just doesn't see it the way we do. And, and you can take comfort in that, that you may not be able to understand what's right here. I don't. But you can rest in the fact, and this is where Sabbath plays such a massive role in your life. Like there has to be a moment where you stop and you fix your eyes on Jesus. The scripture says, who's the author and perfecter of your faith. We have to cease from our activity so that we can focus on what he's already done and what he's doing in the world and join him in that renewal of all things. Because listen, look at what he says to Thomas. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He had us in view. He had the church in view. That there would be these people who would take what has been recorded here for us as that reliable evidence and witness. And for us, it's connected to Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. So accordingly, John lets us know in verse 31 that he's written his gospel record for our benefit so that we would be able to read these words and believe. That we would have reliable witness, reliable evidence. The guy who looked Jesus in the eye is the guy who took pen to paper so that we could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and not just believe something in the past, but have life in his name moving forward.
It's a big deal. So what do we do with our doubt? Peace, in my opinion, is not having the answers to everything. Or direction for the rest of your life. But rather, peace is hearing the word of Jesus. Peace be with you as you jump to that next lily pad in the pond and swamp of doubt and fear. And we do it, notice, you're not doing this of your own volition. We do it as we receive the Holy Spirit and step into our vocation, into our purpose, the purpose that God has set out for people from the beginning of creation. Bring all of your doubts, bring all of your fears, bring all of your skepticism to Jesus and allow him to speak peace over that in your life. Listen, there's no other thought system, religion, scientism, or any other worldview that brings human flourishing like Jesus has and does and will bring for the rest of life. There is a truth claim here. And it's connected to what Jesus has said in John's Gospel. Remember the chapters and divisions, and those are all man-made. This was a story that John wrote And it's all still connected. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And we come to the Father through Him. And so, what do you do with your doubt? What do you do with your fear? You don't ignore it, that's for sure. You need a place that is a safe place. And if the church can't be that safe place, we're doing something wrong. I love the imagery that the church is more like a hospital than it is a club. And I don't know how theologically accurate it is because I didn't uh, really think it through, but I'm going to say it anyway because it helps me and maybe it will help you. I love this idea that we're all just sinners trying to help other sinners find bread. Because in some ways, life is hard. And we can acknowledge that. But at the same time, God is good. And I just want to invite you this morning, whatever your doubts and fears and skepticism is, I just want to invite you to take them and bring them into the presence of Jesus. And allow Him this morning, through the power of His Word, through His Holy Spirit, to speak peace to you in your fears and in your doubts, and in your dismay. Amen? So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to have the band come up, and they're going to play over us again. But from time to time, we take a moment as church family to actually do what the church is supposed to do. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't give you the space to truly, as the scriptures say, carry one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. That's what the scripture says. So when you walk into this place, I don't need you to come just to hear my TED talk. (laughs) I need you to receive the words of life from Jesus. And then you need the person sitting nearby you as much as you need what I have brought today. And we actually believe that. 
And so as the music plays for just a minute or two, I just want to give you the opportunity to pray with somebody near you. That you would grab your spouse or grab your friend or grab somebody near. And listen, if you're new to church, you're like, oh my gosh, he's not doing this right now. Listen, it's not scary at all. You don't even have to pray. Somebody nearby you would love to just pray over you. If it's more comfortable for you, Pastor Jerome will be at the front. Pastor Tim will be at the back. I'll be up here. If it's easier for you to not grab one of those people but come to us, we would be honored and thrilled to pray with you. But listen, let, we're wasting our time if we show up here and act like we've got it all together. We're wasting our time. So let's not act like that. Let's be real. <laughs> let's be real people. And let's pray for each other today. Okay, so find somebody near you can be your spouse, doesn't have to be anything scary, but if you need somebody to pray with, please find somebody near you. We want to hear the voices praying over each other in this room just as a testament that we believe what God says. So come on, let's pray together and then I'll come back up after we sing.